Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Yeah, December 19th, we'll have a meal provided. We'll do some fun stuff. We'll have a, a white elephant gift exchange, and hopefully be, there'll be some thievery, and it'll be a lot of fun. Um, the one time you're encouraged to steal in church, you know, the last couple of years, it's been kind of boring. It's like everybody wants to be too nice and like not take the gift from the other person because they might offend them. And so it's just, it's done real fast. I'm like, yeah, but, uh, yeah, so, so we'll do that. Um, the other thing too, is I send out a, a text every week, kind of just letting us know, Hey, we're meeting tonight or if something changes with the move location or, you know, if we're meeting somewhere else or for whatever reason we can't meet, uh, it's just a good way for me to be able to get information to you uh, really easily. And it's really short. It's not like a group message where you could text back and forth and it's just going off, driving everyone crazy. You can't respond. So it's just a one-way thing. Uh, if you want to get those, you just need to text CCEA Devoted, all one word, to 59769. Kind of the same thing as downstairs. And you'll start getting those messages. If you need help, come see me after. And um, I'll help you get that going. But any questions, everybody? Awesome. So December 19th, Christmas party. Uh, it'll be a blast. So Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at uh, verses 10 through 15. Uh, 14 through 15 is new for us, but I'm going to start in 10 just to kind of give us a background of where we are at. I'll read the passage and then I'll pray for us. Verse 10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm and stand firm. Therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Well, thank you, Lord, that you have defeated our enemy and uh, we get to fight not for victory, but from victory, Lord. I thank you that that same armor that you wore uh, to defeat the enemy, that you've put that on us and you're equipping us to be able to really be you and stand against the devil and have victory over him, Lord. So I pray that you would teach us tonight how to do that. You'd give us some insights on how we could be better in this area of warfare, how we could uh, grow closer to you through that, and how we could be a better witness to this world, Lord. Uh, so speak to us tonight. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for your first fill-in, it's there is a war raging and you are enlisted for the battle. That's basically what Paul is saying in verses 10 through 13, right? There's this spiritual war. You have a spiritual enemy and you need to stand. You, you need to fight. When we look at this section of scripture, it really reads like a military speech. It's almost like Paul is this general and he's standing before his uh, army or his platoon and, and he's giving them this speech before they are about to go into some big battle. And, and I believe the apostle is taking this tone because there is this spiritual war raging against each one of us. And he wants us to be aware of it. And he wants us to be prepared so that we could be effective in battle. He has this true pastor's heart, and he wants what's best for each one of us, wants us to experience fullness of joy and to be able to be as close to God as possible and to be used by God. And he knows that this is the area that's going to trip us up. The enemy's there, and he's working, and, 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 and Paul doesn't want us to fall prey to him. In chapters 1 through 3, it was all about the believer's wealth. It was everything that we have in Christ, all these blessings that are ours in the heavenly places. And then in chapters four through six and a half, it was about the believer's walk. In light of all these blessings we have, in light of us being seated in the heavenly places with Christ, this is how we're to walk. This is how we're to live here on earth. 
And in chapters four to six, we see this over and over. In chapter four, it's uh, put on the new self in the likeness of Christ. In chapter five, it's be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now in chapter six, it's put on the full armor of God. There's this uh, kind of uh, essentially the same thing, this, this call to stand on this power that's higher than ours against this force that's trying to st- trip us up. And that's what we have here in the end of the book. We have the believer's warfare, right? We are in a war, whether we want to recognize it or not, and God wants us to be effective in it. A, a few weeks ago, we looked at verses 10 through 13, and we discussed that the reality of the devil and, and, and this powerful being that's scheming to trip us up and to rob us of our joy and to kill our witness and, uh, and our usefulness to the Lord. And not only do we have this devil who's trying to stop us, but uh, according to the book of Revelation, a third of all the angels followed him. And, and so he's got this whole minion of these evil creatures that do his bidding. And so there's this whole army, this whole force of evil that is against us. I think some people, some Christians especially, think that once you become a Christian, that we're safe, that we don't really need to worry about the devil anymore. It's all good. We're in Christ. We're saved, and there's no more worries. Well, this couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, the enemy stops working in us, but now he starts working outside of us in Christ to rob us of our joy and to kill us and to destroy us. We read in Ephesians 2, in verses 1 through 3, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You know, it, it, right there, Paul is clear that before we were saved, the devil was working in us. He, he, he was a part of our lives, and, and, and he was in control of us. And, and he, he, he's so clever, so deceitful, so subtle that he was working in a way that most of us didn't even recognize him. Most of us didn't even remember the way that he was working. And then we get saved and, and we're delivered. We're a, a new person in Christ, right? Uh, the spirit lives inside of us, but now he moves on the outside. Now he's no longer working in us. He's no longer controlling us. Now he's harassing us from the outside. He's lying to us. He's trying to manipulate us, trying to control us and and things like that, trying to get us to get outside of God's will and to make a wreck of our lives. Imagine as I'm standing here, I got this big old New York City street rat sitting on my shoulder. And we'll say that that street rat is Satan, right? And and I'm a non-believer and I'm just standing there. He's chill. He's been there forever. And, and that's just where he is. Now, all of a sudden, he gets knocked off my shoulder and he starts falling. What's he going to do? As he's going down my back, he's going to stretch and claw and, and do everything he can trying to get back up onto this place on my shoulder to get back to where he was, controlling my life and, and doing whatnot. And I think that is a great picture of the reality of Satan. Before we're saved, we're just going about life. We don't even acknowledge him, don't even care that he's there. It's just oblivious to the fact that he exists and he's in control of my life. But as soon as God takes control of it and kicks him off, he's going to scratch, he's going to claw, he's going to do everything he can to get back to that place of ruining me and controlling me. You know, the Bible tells us that we have three enemies in the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is simply just fallen world system that we're living in. It's the government, the societies without God and in opposition to God. The flesh is my fallen nature, which the Bible says is at enmity with God. When I got saved, yes, the devil was cast out of me and the spirit of God moved in, but I still have this corrupted fallen nature. Paul says in Romans 7 that, you know, the very things that he wants to do, uh, he doesn't do. And the very things that he doesn't want to do, he does, because there's this conflict between the two natures inside of him, right? And and, and so we we have that conflict. And now Satan comes, and he's going to take the 
world, the things that the world is bringing, the circumstances that that's bringing into my life, and he's going to take my fallen sinful desires and passions that my fallen flesh has, and he's going to work in between those two really subtly to try to deceive me and to try to tempt me to not honor God. You know, this this idea of spiritual warfare, it isn't necessarily always the bad things that happen to us. I, I, I hear that all the time. It's like something bad happened to me. Oh, it's got a lot of spiritual warfare going on. Well, maybe you do, but just because something bad happens to you, I don't necessarily think that's spiritual warfare. I'll often hear a Christian say something like, oh, I got a flat tire on the way to work. Yeah, the spiritual warfare was out of control this morning. And it's like, oh, I'm pretty sure non-believers get flat tires too. You know, the flat tire isn't the spiritual warfare. Everybody gets flat tires. It's how are you going to respond to having that flat tire? Are you going to respond in faith? Are you going to trust God with it? Or are you going to allow Satan to get you in the flesh and you know, act in a way that doesn't honor God? How do we fight this enemy? How do we fight this invisible enemy that we can't see that wants to rob us, kill kill us, and destroy us? How does God want us to engage him? I think it's pretty obvious from our text that God wants us to stand. Paul's calling us to take a stand. That's it. That's how we fight this enemy. We're to take a stand against him. James 4, 7 and 8 says, Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We're to take a stand. We're to submit to God and, and say no to the devil. We're to resist him and he'll simply flee. You know, nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us to go out and to try to fight the devil or to go looking for the devil or to rebuke the devil or to bind the devil. We're simply called to stand and resist the devil. That's the way that we fight him, is we stand, we stand on the word of God, and, 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 and we say no. That's it. You know, even Michael, the archangel, probably maybe one of the greatest and most powerful creative beings ever in all of creation, you know, Michael is probably one of the greatest and most powerful things created. He didn't even try to rebuke the devil. When they were wrestling over uh, Moses' body, he said, no, the the Lord rebuke you. He knew that the devil was even too big of a match for him. If we go out and try to fight the devil and rebuke the devil, it's not going to end well for us. We're going to end up like the sons of Sceva who just get abused and run off naked when they're trying to cast out demons because we won't be doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jude 9 says, but... Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we stand against the enemy? And Paul makes it clear that we do that by putting on the armor that God provides for us. We put on God's armor, and that's what's going to allow us to stand and to have victory. For our next point, fill in the words equips and weaponry. God equips us with his tested weaponry. Last week, while we were talking about this passage, I mentioned the fact that the Old Testament, God is called a warrior many, many times. And not only is God called a warrior, but we see the Messiah in the book of Isaiah wearing armor, the same armor that we're going to be talking about. We're going to see that every one of these pieces of armor that Paul's going to mention is straight out of the book of Isaiah. It's armor that the warrior Messiah was wearing. And the good thing is, is that he was victorious in this armor. This armor was tested. Remember, he was tempted in all ways, yet as we were, yet without sin. He went through battle after battle after battle with Satan in the wilderness, in the garden, on the cross. And this, this armor that he wore came out on top. It was victorious. It was all that we need. And the idea is this, he's going to take that armor, that same armor that was his, and put it on us. And, and, and so we're going to have everything that we need to be successful as well. Remember the story of David and Goliath? I mean, who doesn't remember that? 
But remember little Davy, and he's coming to check on his brothers, and uh, you know he sees this big uproar. Everybody's standing on one side of the mountain, and all these people are on the other. And there's this big old giant in the middle, you know, taunting everybody, and everybody's all freaked out and that. And Davy finds out that hey, you know what? And nobody will go fight him. But if if somebody were to fight him and win, there'd be all these blessings, all this cool stuff that they'd get. You know, they get to marry the king's daughter, wouldn't have to pay taxes, <laughs> things like that. And David's like. Why are you guys all afraid? I'll fight him. Yeah, and, and and Saul tries to talk him out of it. Like, no, 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 you can't fight him. You're but a youth. He's been fighting from his youth. You know, you're you're no match for him. And David's like, no, 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 he, he's, he's no match for me. He's no match for God. And, and Saul's like, all right, but if you're going to fight him, you're, you're going to need to put some armor on. And so Saul, Saul takes his armor and starts trying to put it on David. Remember, David's just a, a little guy and Saul is huge. Saul's heads and shoulders above everybody else. And David's like, this ain't going to work. I can't move in your armor. You know? And, and so he, he goes out to, to fight the, the, the enemy, to fight the giant. And what did he have? He had a sling and a few stones. Well, no, he had a little bit more than that. Listen to what it says in 1 Samuel 17, 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. That was David's armor. His armor was the name of the Lord of hosts. And that name throughout the Bible, name always signifies character. It it, it signifies ownership. It signifies power. So David belonged to the Lord's army, and he came in the character and the power of Christ, which he knew was more effective than any weaponry that the enemy could bring against him. There's there's no power that can stand against the power of Christ. So as we look at these pieces of armor, we must keep in mind that each piece of armor is representative of some aspect of Christ's character. That's what we're really being commended to do is to put on the character of Christ, to put on Christ. In chapter 3, 1, Paul tells us that he is writing this letter as a prisoner of the Lord, right? Paul's in prison, and the way it worked back then when you were in prison is you would be chained to a soldier 24 hours a day. About every six hours, they would bring a different soldier in and rotate him out, and he would be chained to a new soldier. And as he's thinking about warfare, and he's thinking about the book of Isaiah, and, and, and he's looking at these various pieces of armor that the soldier would wear, Paul then starts kind of uh, using the soldier's armor to spiritualize or symbolize aspects of Christ's character, which is our defense against the enemy. So he, he's going to look at the armor, and he's going to Each piece of it, it, it's going to represent some aspect of Christ's character, some aspect of the Word of God, and that were to apply to us to have victory over the enemy. And I want to point out one more thing before we start talking about these pieces of armor individually. You know, a Roman soldier wouldn't have been able to put on all this armor by himself especially when they got to the breastplate of righteousness. He would have needed help to put that on. I remember the first college football game that I played in. It was in the kickoff classic. It was the first game of the year in the year 2000. It was a big deal. And I was at USC, and we were playing Penn State in the kickoff classic. And it was at the Meadowlands in New Jersey. And I remember it. You know, there was so much preparation, so much work that went into getting ready for this first game. And I remember we finally get in the stadium and I'm in the locker room and I go to put my shoulder pads on and there was something different about them. You see, our trainers, our, 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 our equipment people, they would take our jerseys and they'd use double-sided tape to tape it to our shoulder pads. That way the, or the opponent wouldn't be able to grab our jersey. There was nothing that they could grab on. However, that made it really, really hard to put my shoulder pads on. All of a sudden, I couldn't put them on all by myself. I had to have my teammate help me put my shoulder pads on so that I could go and get into the game. And I say that because the Roman soldier wouldn't have been able to put the breastplate on himself. A nobler soldier would have to help him do that. 
And so we can't fully put Christ-like character on without each other. That's why we do devote it. That's why I study every week to come here and teach. That's why we have small groups like this. That's why this group is, is so vital to be fully armored. You see, we need to pray for each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to confess our sins to each other. We need to stir each other up to love and good works if we're going to be fully equipped to be able to stand. We, we need each other. It's not something that you could do all by yourself. Notice also that we need to put each piece of armor on. We need to put on the full armor. It's not enough for me to be truth and for Aaron to be righteous and for Ryan to be gospel focused. No, God's design is that each one of us has every piece of armor on because we all need each piece of armor if we're going to stand. Our enemy is too subtle. The one piece that I leave off, the one piece of Christ's character that I don't add to my life, that's exactly where he's going to attack me. That's exactly where he's going to have success over me. So we need to be fully armored up. But let's start looking at these individually. The, there are six pieces of armor that Paul is going to mention. And these are often broken up into two sets of three. The first three pieces are items that are fixed to your body. The things that you put on and they stay on. They go everywhere that you go. The next three are things that you pick up and wield and yield and you can set down and, you know, they're, they're, they're not fixed to you. So this evening, we're going to look at the, the first three pieces, those that would be fixed to our body, things that always need to be on us. So for letter A, fill in the word center. The truth needs to be at the center of our lives. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, right? Those days for dress, both men and women, they basically wore basically like dresses. You know, it was this big piece of fabric. There was a hole for your head. And there was kind of two arm things and it just kind of flowed down, you know? And so, you know, men and women, they would kind of wear these longer dresses and they were kind of cumbersome. They'd kind of get in the way when you were working and doing different things. So the men, when they were working, they would either take their dress off. Remember Peter in John 20, when the Lord appears on the shore, he's like, hey, have you caught any fish? And Peter, not knowing it was the Lord, was like, no, we didn't catch anything. He's like, well, throw your net on the other side. And they get this big catch and he realizes it's the Lord. And it says that he had to put his clothes on because he was fishing naked. He had taken his dress off because it was too cumbersome and now he had to put it on to swim to the Lord but we would wear these kind of dresses <laughs> now if you're getting in a fight or a battle the last thing you want is for your dress to be flowing everywhere right <laughs> you, you could trip on it right <laughs> you could get it caught in things like a bush you know the enemy could grab hold of it you know and trip you up you know they could do like the hockey thing where they pull it over your head and you're just gone, you know, you don't really have a chance, you know, so it's, it's not a good thing, <laughs> you know, to have your, uh, your dress just going everywhere, right? So it's an important piece of armor for the soldiers was their belt, right? They needed to have a belt. They needed to be able to cinch that up. They need to pull their dress up and put their belt on to kind of keep it out of the way. And Paul's going to liken this belt to the belt of truth. Remember I, I said each aspect of this armor is straight out of the book of Isaiah, and it speaks something about Christ. Well, 11, Isaiah 11.5 says this. I'm going to read it to you in the, in the Septuagint. It says, And he will be girded at the waist with righteousness and enclosed with truth at his side. Speaking of the Messiah. Right? So the Messiah would be girded around the waist with righteousness and enclosed with truth on his side. For number one, knowing the truth protects us from the enemy's lies. So from the word knowing. Now there's some debate about what is meant by truth here. Right? Uh, some say it's just truth, like the content of truth. Truth, you know, what's, what's true? The Bible. Right? And other exegetes say, well, no, that 
kind of redundant, right? Because the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, right? And, and so there's this debate. Some say it, you know, it's, it's the content of truth. It's the word of God. Some say it's a, a spirit kind of, of truthfulness. And some say it's like a body of truth. And you ask me which one it is, and I'm going to say yes. And so we're going to cover all uh, three. But remember that Jesus in, in John chapter 8, he's dealing with the Pharisees, right? And, and they were believing on him, and, and, and he's not really believing in them, right? He tells them, hey, if you continue in my word, you know, then you're, you're truly my disciples. Well, he says this in John 8, 44. He finally tells them, you are of the devil, and you want the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a lie, and he is the father of lies. Right? He's a liar. He's going to come to you, and he's going to lie to you. He's going to try to deceive you. So, of course, knowing the truth is going to be absolutely essential if we're not going to fall prey to his attacks. We know that Jesus is the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but my me. We know that his word is truth and his high priestly player in John 17, 17, he says, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So Jesus is the truth. The Bible's the truth. And we need to use the truth to fight the enemy. You know, the more Bible we know, the less the enemy is going to be able to deceive us. The more time that we spend in the book, the more this book that we get in ourselves, the less we're going to fall prey to the attacks of the enemy. You know, Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And all three temptations we have recorded, he, him responding, it is written, it is written, it is written. Right? And, and so this is definitely true, right? That, that we're to use the truth, we're to use the word of God to combat the lies of the enemy. But I think there's more to it than this, right? I already talked about how the sword of the spirit is the word of God. And I think that's kind of what Jesus was doing out there in the wilderness. He was using the word of God, the book of Isaiah, to combat the lies that the enemy was bringing his way. But there's another way that the truth or truth is used in the Bible. So for number two, put guarding the truth protects us from compromisers. If only we're guarding. Uh, Paul, all the way back in chapter one of Ephesians, says this in verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. See, we had listened to the message of truth, the gospel, your salvation. So in one sense, yeah, the whole Bible is true. It's the word of God. But then it's also spoken of as a, a collective truth. Uh, it, it's spoken of as right doctrine or orthodox belief. Everything that the Bible teaches as a whole. It, it's, it's truth as a system of belief, right? It, it's, it's the same way that Jude uses it in uh, Jude 3, right? That we're to earnestly contend for the faith. The faith isn't your personal belief in Jesus. No, it's, it's, a, it's right doctrine. It's the collection of beliefs that has been passed down from one generation to the next. It's used this way in Titus 1.1. Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. I mean, is that speaking of one specific truth? No, it's it's the collection of truth. It's, it's, it's Christian teaching, Christian doctrine. Jesus uses it this way in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. Jesus saying to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, you know, the right system of belief, and that right system of belief will set you free. You see, throughout the church age, church history, Satan has used individuals with bad doctrine to come in and compromise the church and ultimately cause her harm. 
This happened at the very beginning of the church. There were these Judaizers who came in to the church with this semblance of faith, but they caused all kinds of damage when they started insisting that if you're going to be a Christian, you needed to become a Jew and you needed to get circumcised if you really want to be a Christian. And this was so destructive that even Peter fell into this heresy and Paul had to rebuke him in Galatians chapter 2. So the church leaders got together in Jerusalem and they started hashing it out. And they decided that, no, that the Gentiles weren't under the yoke of the law. They just needed to abstain from a few things. They needed to abstain from sexual immorality and from idolatry and and, and from eating and drinking things with blood. And, And they would be okay. A few years later, there was another problem. This time it was in Corinth. The church in Corinth, this group had came in and they had started teaching bad doctrine. They were teaching uh, bad doctrine regarding the resurrection. They said, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, but that doesn't mean we're going to actually rise from the dead. And so they started teaching people that you, you live and then you die and then that's it. And because of that, they were getting into all kinds of wrong living. They were living really licentiously. Why, I mean, why not? Like if you just live and you die and there's nothing more, like just might as well just enjoy this life. But it's because of that error, that wrongness, that Paul writes the 15th chapter of Corinthians about the resurrection. And, and, and he corrects them in their errant views of the resurrection. He's like, no, we, we will rise again. And we've seen this over and over and over throughout church history. Some groups comes in with a heresy, which inevitably affects believers' behavior because doctrine is always tied to duty. What we believe is always going to affect the way that we behave. And the church was going to convene this council and they're going to hash out the problem and they're going to come up with some kind of creed or confession to make sure everybody knows what the truth is so that they could, you know, safeguard that truth. You know, that's why it was so important to me that we did that series a while back on the the truths we confess. We studied the Westminster Confession of Faith to make sure that we understood these core doctrines, this core system of belief so that we can guard it, so that we can make sure that we're not accepting people into our fellowship that are outside of that. Because if you're coming in and you're outside of that, you're going to come in with bad living and, and, and you're going to corrupt from within, right? A leaven leavens the whole lump. And, and we've seen that throughout church history over and over and over where these groups come in and they compromise the church and the church starts living the wrong way, and it needs to be corrected. So we need to fight for the truth. We need to put on that belt of truth. Number three, the truth is for our private parts. Our private parts. Notice how to wear to gut up the loins with truth. The truth is to cover our our loins. Now, the way that this belt worked, it was uh, usually a leather belt, and I'm sure you've seen pictures of it where it would have other uh, sheets of leather hanging from the belt kind of in front to kind of protect the loin area, the growing area. I like what John Corson said regarding this. He says, loins speak of the personal area of one's life. The private life of a spiritual man is surrounded by truth. He will do well who determines to put away lying. In the day he should have been in battle, David took off his armor, got involved with Bathsheba, killed her husband, and tried to cover it up. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, he wrote a year later, whose sin is covered. For when I kept silent, my bones waxed old. Day and night, they were heavy upon me. My moisture was turned to the drought of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin unto thee, mine iniquity I hid not. He says in Psalm 32, he was wasting away because he had hidden sin in his private life. And that's always going to happen. When we have hidden sin in our private life, it's going to wax away at our vitality. We're not going to be as strong. We're not going to be able to stand as strong as God wants us to be against the enemy because we're going to be compromised. So we need to put that belt of truth on. Let her be righteousness is like a bulletproof vest. Fill in the word righteousness. In verse 14, again, it says, 
stand firm, therefore, having girded up your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This breastplate of righteousness is straight out of Isaiah 59, 17. It says he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. Now, the idea for the soldier of the breastplate was that it was to protect uh, his or her uh, vital organs, right? It would protect your heart, your liver, your kidney, these vital organs. Like you could get stabbed in the shoulder, in the arm, you could get, you know, cut on the leg, things like that, you're going to be fine. But, you know, you get stabbed in the kidney or the liver or in the heart, you know, it's not going to be so good. So we need to do everything we can to protect that area. And that's what the breastplate of righteousness was for. The breastplate was often, it was uh, leather, and they'd have like a chain mill kind of attached to it that would cover you. Sometimes it was uh, metal that was beaten with a hammer. You know, we've seen that where it kind of covers the whole torso here. By the way, we often hear preachers say that this breastplate only covers the front part of someone and not the back. So we have to keep moving forward because we have no protection behind us. Uh, That's not simply true. I mean, it it preaches really well, right? You need to keep moving forward and that, but it's just not true. The breastplate would have covered the front and the back. But the question becomes, what kind of righteousness is Paul talking about here? See, there's two kinds of righteousness in the Bible. There's positional righteousness and there's practical righteousness. Positional righteousness is what we get when we believe in Jesus. We're positionally placed in Christ by one spirit. We've all been baptized into Christ Jesus. We've all been submerged into Christ. We're positionally in Christ. Now, this is what allows me to be in God's presence. Remember Jesus, before he was arrested in John 16, he said that when the Spirit comes, it'll convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. In sin, because they didn't believe in me. In righteousness, because I go to the Father. In judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Right? When we look at that in righteousness, because I go to the Father, what that's teaching us is really the uh, standard for being in God's presence. It's perfect righteousness. Jesus, the only person who had ever lived an absolutely perfect life, had perfect merit, was the only one who was able to ascend into God's presence, because that's the standard. Now, the Bible says that when we believed in Jesus, we were given a righteousness that wasn't our own. We were given his righteousness. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3, in verse 9, and he says, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. John Calvin called it an alien righteousness. This righteousness that comes from somewhere else, from someone, uh, from this uh, person from a different world is the idea. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he'll say, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, when Jesus was dying on the cross, there was this double imputation happening. You see, my sin was imputed unto Christ, and Christ's merit, Christ's righteousness was imputed to me. It's almost like this. Jesus says, hey, you know what? I'll trade you my life for yours. I'll trade you my future for yours. And so we trade him our sin. We trade him our future in hell. And we receive his merit and his future with the Father. But I don't think that's the righteousness that Paul's talking about here. Because nowhere are we told in the scriptures to put that on. You see, God clothes us with the righteousness of Christ the second we believe, and it never comes off. There's no reason for us to have to put that on. So we're not talking about positional righteousness. We're talking about practical righteousness or right living. It's practically living that righteousness out. So for number one, 
right living limits the enemy's opportunities to attack. Fill in the words, the word limits. This is kind of obvious, but if I'm constantly doing what is right, the devil's going to have a whole lot less opportunities to attack me. Right? He's going to have a whole lot less that he could accuse me of. A whole lot less ways to condemn me. Right? Uh, he's not going to be able to you know, accuse me because I'm not doing anything wrong. In Romans 8.1, Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ. Right? God's looking at us, and practically, he's seeing the righteousness of Christ. He's looking at us through the lens of Christ. And so there's, there's no condemnation for us. But sometimes I feel condemnation. Why is it that when I sin, when I'm doing things wrong, sometimes I feel condemned? Sometimes I, I, I don't feel right, even though there is no condemnation. Well, that's because the enemy is going to attack and he's going to try to lay this guilt trip on me for my failure. You know, it, it, uh, I, I, I may not, uh, in, in truth, face condemnation, but I can experience condemnation when I'm not being obedient to the Lord. And if I have less failures, there's obviously less he can condemn or accuse me of. Uh, Proverbs 13.6, a great verse. Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless, but wickedness subverts the sinner. You know, righteousness guards our way. 2 Corinthians 6.7, it says, In the word of truth and the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. You see, our Righteousness is really a weapon that we could use against the enemy. Because if we're living the right way, he's not going to be able to attack us. You know, how many amazing and gifted men of God are of no more use to the kingdom of God because they didn't guard their behavior and sin destroyed their ability to be used by God? You know, sin can't take away our salvation, but it could definitely take away our usefulness. It could take away our joy. It could take away our witness. So we need to rein in these loose areas of our life and tuck them into the belt of truth. We need to put righteous living on to protect our vital organs from the attacks of the enemies. You know, as I was thinking about this, I thought of the late apologist, Ravi Zacharias, right? And I'm sure you guys know who he is and a little bit about him, but it's so sad. You know, he didn't rein in these loose areas in his life. And he gave in to the temptations of lust, and it, it just destroyed his witness. It destroyed his ministry. I mean, it, it really, it, this guy was brilliant. He, he gave some of the, the greatest defenses for the faith that we've ever had. But in reality, does anybody really care anymore? Is anybody going to listen to anything he has to say about faith and about truth and about the way that people should live? No, obviously not. Nobody wants to hear that from a man who sexually assaulted women and and preyed on vulnerable women. Now, his actions don't negate the truth that he spoke. It's still truth, but it's not useful because it's from such a, a leaky vessel. He still gets to go to heaven. However, there's this huge cloud that destroyed the ministry he built. His, his, his reputation is, is gone because he didn't guard the way that he lived. He didn't rein in those loose areas in his life. That's why Solomon says in Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence. From, from it flows the springs of life. For letter C, fill in, uh, make sure you're wearing appropriate footwear. I'm going to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, but we need to have the right shoes on, right? That's always important, right? You're going somewhere, you're doing some kind of activity, that you have the, the, the right shoes on, right? I don't want to go play basketball in my cowboy boots. That's not going to work out very well. Any of you watched the Super Bowl last year? There was this huge controversy regarding the playing surface. You know, these players were slipping everywhere because I guess they put in some kind of new turf and different players had to use three, four different types of cleats, trying them throughout the game to try to get footing that would uh, cleats that would give them the kind of footing that they wanted, right? 
if we don't want to be sliding all over the place in the slippery world, we need to have the right footwear on. That, that, that's what Paul's telling us. So for number one, gospel shoes give us the stability in this shifting world. Fill in the word stability. Our verse here, 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. See, the, the gospel is the footwear that allows us to stand in this slippery world. When I'm attacked and told I've sinned and God can't love me anymore, I need to preach the gospel to myself. And remember, Jesus already died for that sin. He died while I was a, a sinner. My sin isn't going to negate that. All of a sudden, I say, oh, I, I loved you when you were my enemy and I died for you. And now you're trying to love me, but you blew it. So screw you, I'm done with you. No, he's not going to do that. He gave me eternal life which by nature, it means it lasts forever. It can't be taken away from me. So the enemy is going to come and he's going to try to rob us of our peace in Christ. And it's the gospel that's going to render that attack ineffective. You know, this Sunday, I, I, I like watching football. I like watching the Rams. Uh, I wanted to watch the Rams game, but my dad, he had somewhere to go. And we'd been watching the games together. And so I said, you know what, dad, I'll, I'll, I'll record it. And I'll wait and I'll, and I'll watch it with you. We could watch it together. He's like, oh, that'd be great. And so I recorded it. But there was a few times where I would get messages or my phone would update, and it would kind of tell me the score of the game, right? And so now I'm watching the game with my dad, but I already know how the game ended. And so the Rams are driving the ball, and Stafford throws an interception, and instead of freaking out and being all pissed off and all angst, I'm kind of calm about it because I already know, hey, it's going to be okay. We're, we're, we're going to win in the end, right? Because I've already seen the outcome. Well, God's already given us the outcome of this world and this life right here in the book. We know how it's going to end. We know that Christ is going to win. Christ is going to be vindicated. We're going to be with him, right? So, so we don't have to fight for victory. We're, we're fighting from victory. So all these little things that are happening that Satan's going to try to use to trip us up and to deceive us and to confuse us, it's like, no, it's not going to work. I already know we win. I already know how it's going to end. I already know where I'm going to end up. You know, you, you can say all that you want. It doesn't matter is the idea. You know, Jesus kind of... Jesus kind of assumed this in John 14. He says, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. He's given us this peace that is totally alien to this world because it's a gospel peace. And for that, we don't have to let our heart be troubled. Or how about at the end of that speech in John 16, 33, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Number two, being gospel focused is a great defense. Fill in the word defense. You know, there's commentators who argue whether having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, uh, whether it, it has anything to do with evangelism or not. Right? And, and there's some that say, no, it has nothing to do with evangelism because we're to put them on not to go in to the four corners of the earth and share the gospel. No, Paul's telling us we need to put on this gospel shoes so that we could stand, so that we could withstand the attacks of the enemy. Right? So it's not necessarily about evangelism. They argue that it's to be used for ourselves, that we're to remind ourselves of the gospel so we don't fall into works righteousness. And on one hand, I think they have a point. Hence, that's why I was just talking about that, you know, the last point. However, I do think our readiness to use the gospel and evangelism is key for our own protection as well. I, I really do. Uh, this idea of the gospel shoes, it comes out of Isaiah 52, 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace 
and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, listen to the way that that Jesus came and spoke peace or preached peace. Ephesians 2.7, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. So Jesus was using these gospel shoes to preach peace, to bring Jew and Gentile together in the church. He was using it in the evangelistic way. You know, but the gospel really is the defense for our hearts. If we could remember that we're priests, that we're ambassadors of the gospel, it's going to change the way that we deal with those who offend us, right? Some dude offends me. I'm not going to, you know, get all freaked out. I'm going to be praying for him. I'm thinking to God saying, hey, save him. I'm going to be looking for an opportunity to share the gospel with him. When I walk down State College to go to the grocery store and I got to step over the stinky drunk guy in my way, I don't have to get upset with about it. I could take him to prayer and prayer to God. And I could go and try to look for opportunities to share the good news with them. So, so in doing so, it's protecting my heart. It's keeping me from becoming hard-hearted. It's protecting me from becoming angry. It's protecting me from getting into a place that I don't want to be. It's keeping the devil from being able to use the things of a fallen world and the desires of my fallen flesh to his advantage to trip me up. So we need the armor. We need to take the armor that God has given us, this armor that Christ used, that Christ tested and was victorious in, and we need to allow God to put that on us, and we need to stand we need to stand in, in the power of God against the enemy. And I guarantee you, as we do, we'll start seeing greater and greater victory over him. He's going to have less and less a place in our life. And we're going to see God opening greater and greater doors for our usefulness. We'll see our joy go through the roof. And we'll start being a greater and greater witness to this world. Amen. So, Father, I do thank you. I thank you for all of this. I thank you that you defeated Satan and we're fighting from victory, not for victory. I thank you that you've equipped us to be as victorious as you were in this world, Lord. So help us not to rely on our own understanding or our own strength or our ingenuity, but to rely on you in your word, Lord. Help us to try to pursue Christ-like character. That's what this is getting at, that we need to live and have a life that reflects the character of our Savior and our God, Lord. And so make that our desire. Make us, you know, hunger and thirst for righteousness, Lord. And um, I just thank you that, that we're here, Lord. I thank you for this season that we're in. I pray you'd give us opportunities to redeem it. I pray that we would use those opportunities to share the gospel, to do these things that we're talking about to tell people about the incarnation and the need for the incarnation and why the incarnation is so great, Lord. And uh, may you just fill us with your spirit and your fire, Lord, so that we could burn for you in this coming week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.